Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we've been, again, going through these Beatitudes, and last week we learned that the meek will inherit the earth, and I've been making the case that these promises here in the Beatitudes are eschatological in nature, meaning that they will be fulfilled in eternity, in glory, not in the here and now, in the present day, so the meek will inherit the earth eventually, but not now. That's what I said. And then later, that afternoon, the Bengals beat the Chiefs, so... It only shows to go, yeah, that maybe the meek get a little something here and now after all, but um, this is something that Elder George has been desiring deeply for decades. And um, in any event, today we're going to talk about desires, um, deep desires, hunger. Uh, So far in the Sermon on the Mount, we've learned that the picture of the happy, blessed man is a picture of a poor, meek, and mourning spirit. Kind of a sad sack image, in other words. It's not the most obviously happy picture, really, but that's what Jesus says. And he says that they are happy, they are blessed, because there are blessings in their future. Uh, Not that the things are fun here and now. It's more that if we do this, we get the kingdom, we get comfort, and we get the whole earth. That's a pretty good deal overall. And today, he kicks it up yet another notch and tells us that the happiest people are also hungry and thirsty. Who here has ever been hungry, to borrow a question from children's Sunday school today? Yeah. Who's hungry right now? (laughs) Better get hungry if you're not yet, right? Uh, You know, I, I read this and I think to myself, being hungry is the one thing I could think of that would make all of the preceding things a little bit worse. Um... Because if I'm poor, even poor in spirit, I I can have a full stomach and get by a little easier, right? A full belly makes it easier to be spiritually empty before God if my belly is full. Uh, It makes it easier to believe in God's goodness. If I'm in mourning, eating helps. That's why people talk about feeding their feelings, right? And I, I mentioned my unseemly weight gain when my father died. Because in his honor, we ate primo hoagies and, and pizza for like weeks, right? And... Georgia will testify, and probably many women could, that the chocolate is like a consolation prize for being sad. It complements happiness quite well, too. It's fine in all seasons. but And even being meek seems less humiliating if you have food. Last week I mentioned a family video that we found or, or sent to us that it included a scrawny teenage me, and I, I said I looked meek. But to be fair, I did not look unhappy because... I was in South Philly. As I was at my Aunt Marie's house. I was in her kitchen eating at what amounted to a homemade Italian buffet. So life was good, you know. Uh, meekness and humility aren't so bad if you're well fed. Some of you uh, spent the whole weekend possibly embarrassing yourself on the slope skiing, and that's okay. You're among friends, and maybe you're feeling meek about that whole thing. But there's hot soup downstairs and, and pulled pork, and pork products have a way of making life better even if you're feeling meek. And yet, here I am, again, forced into a strange situation where I am here to commend to you hunger and thirst. The truly blessed man has an appetite. 
Now, I realize, of course, that Jesus doesn't mean physical hunger and thirst, but it's not a mistake that he words it this way. Um, In Luke's gospel, Jesus gives the edited version of this beatitude. He says, blessed are those who are hungry now. So there's this connection symbolically between physical hunger and thirst and spiritual hunger and thirst, which is really the point of biblical fasting, isn't it? Uh, What Jesus is getting at is your internal desires. Uh, We know that being poor in spirit is a mindset. We talked about that. Mourning is an emotional sort of reflective act, right? Uh, Meekness is an attitude. But this verse, I think, is getting to something even more fundamental, an internal need, an urge, an instinct even. Physical hunger and thirst is not something you have to be taught, right? You don't have to work on that. Uh, It's something fundamental to the way that you're designed. You don't decide to be hungry or thirsty. Um, Being hungry and and thirsty, it's like any pain that's in you. You, It's designed to get your attention. God put it there for that reason. It's a sign that you're alive, really. It, It indicates that you need something. If your body were to stop sensing that it was hungry or thirsty, you would eventually die. So you can't ignore hunger or thirst. And that means hunger and thirst aren't bad things. Everyone's experienced them. That's why Jesus can use this as an illustration. It's something all of us can wrap our heads around. But let's be honest. We scarcely know the true meaning of hunger in this country. We are about the only country in the world where obesity is an indicator of poverty. Uh, We are flooded with Weight Watcher ads and gym chains and obsessions over every new diet every year. I feel like I can relate to what Jim Gaffigan, I believe, has said, that he hasn't been hungry in years. He says, I don't even remember what it feels like. That's probably true of most of us if we're talking about real deep hunger. What's the hungriest you've ever been? What stands out to me when I think on it is is Georgia and I were were dieting last year. It was a very traumatic experience. Um, Everyone gained weight uh, especially early in the pandemic, I think, right? And, and we were no exception. It turns out that the, uh, the long nights of eating cheese on the couch while watching Tiger King in the office, eventually, you know, you got to pay the piper. Um, so I committed myself to lose weight, and I did. I, I, I got rid of about 25 pounds, and I think I've put most of it back on. I can't really be sure because the batteries died in our scale, and we're not really in a hurry to replace them. <laughs> LAUGHTER But anyway, losing even 25 pounds was kind of a miserable experience, to be honest, Cost-benefit analysis, you know, I don't know. We, we were counting calories. We were skipping meals. We were turning down treats from the kids. We had little to no bread in the house. We weren't eating pizza. I was made to feel guilty for eating ramen noodles. <laughs> Georgia always judges me for eating ramen noodles, but they had just a high enough calorie count to put me over for the day, so she judged me not only for my taste, but also for the calories. So I was perpetually unhappy and irritable for several months. I was hangry. People know what it means to be hangry, right? Where you're so hungry that you just become angry, that's me. I get hangry to the point that I don't function well. Sometimes I have called Georgia from the office in a panic when I'm working during the week, and I'll call her because my writing has been slow, and I'm frantic, and I have all this energy. I have the jitters. I've had too much coffee. I can't focus. I'm angry at the world and convinced that I'm failing as a pastor, and she has to talk to me kind of like a 911 dispatch person, right? <laughs> have you been drinking any water? Have you had any protein? Like, she like, walks me through these things, and you know, it's, it's okay. We're going to walk through this. You're going to be fine. And it's gotten to a point where I actually have to keep a a secret stash of protein in my desk. 
It's a funny thing about hunger, you know, it doesn't just go away. Food isn't one of those things you can stop thinking about after a while. You can wean yourself off of a lot of things, but food isn't one of them. Hunger never goes away without food, and it never goes away permanently. I can eat three days' worth of calories this afternoon, and I might, but I will need to eat it again, eventually. And thirst, thirst is even worse. And I say this as someone who experiences more thirst than I do hunger, because I do live mostly on coffee and maybe the occasional beer, right? I don't drink plain water because I'm a brat and it bores me. Uh, it needs to be carbonated or I need to have lime juice in it there or, or something, you know. I literally keep a large mug full of cut limes in the fridge at all times. And if we run out of limes, I just don't drink water until we get more. I can go without pure water for days. I've done it. But your body kind of needs water, right? More than food, even. Because thirst will kill you faster than hunger will. You know, if sometimes a doctor will put you on an all-liquid diet, in some cases in the hospital, they'll reduce you to a, an IV drip, right? But they never put you on a liquids-free diet. There's not really any such thing. Uh, Georgia has tried that on houseplants. It doesn't work for them either. <laughs> you need water. Everything does. And water alone even can get you by for a little while. You can technically live on water for a few days. That's how chia pets work. Water brings life. And it, and it tends to keep everything going. So by calling this a hunger and a thirst, Jesus is giving us a picture of an internal desire, a need, really. Not something merely intellectual and not something physical. It's something that's built into us. When Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, she came there at midday to get water, because you need water, but it's the hottest, worst time of the day to do that job, and Jesus knows that the only reason she's there in the heat is to avoid people because she's the local tramp. She's been divorced five times, she's cohabiting with yet another guy, but she's thirsty, and Jesus connects her physical thirst with spiritual thirst, and says what she really needs is living water. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So physical hunger and thirst illustrates a spiritual need. Jesus is saying that we should desire, we should need righteousness just as surely as we need food and drink. We should be so alert to its absence that it's painful to us. The lack of it should become almost an obsession. Because we'll die without it just as surely as we would die without food or drink. You know, before the advent of refrigeration and industrial farming, uh, feeding yourself was, was a full-time job. Uh, the vast majority of most societies throughout human history have been employed in agriculture. If you weren't planting and harvesting, you were hunting. Everything revolved around planning your next few meals. So we're still reading these little house books, and we're up to the long winter now. And one gets the impression that, you know, surviving a South Dakota winter meant focusing 90 to 95% of your energy on securing your next meal and access to water. Feeding yourself and your livestock was a full-time job. And that's what Jesus is talking about, because he lived in an agrarian society. Most people either farmed or fished. As a carpenter, he was actually one of the rare people who would have been working a trade. Everyone else would be in farming, and if you didn't work hard, you would starve. Ditto if there was a famine, like the kids were talking about in Sunday school this morning. Deep physical hunger and parching thirst are not pleasant things. 
And moreover, Jesus knew all about it, because you have to remember that this sermon comes at the very beginning of his public ministry, which means it's coming right on the heels of his 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. So Jesus knew very well what physical hunger and thirst felt like. And again, it's not like some desires where if you ignore it long enough or distract yourself, you can eventually forget about it, is it? Hunger and thirst grow stronger and stronger until they're satisfied. Hunger and thirst are even stronger than sexual desire in that sense. You can live without sex, but you won't last long without food and drink. All that's to say, Jesus uses this illustration because the memory is fresh for him. He knows what it's like for the physical body to be deprived of basic necessities. He's experienced hunger and thirst. None of us can even imagine. It's painful. It's constant. It's all-consuming. And Jesus says that the happiest people feel the same way about righteousness. That's quite a statement. And I think it requires some further unpacking. Because what we're supposed to desire so intensely is righteousness. Martin Lloyd-Jones points out that that kind of flips the tables because Jesus doesn't tell us to desire happiness. He says happy is the man who desires righteousness. It's backwards, of course, right, to our natural way of thinking because we all desire happiness. It's why we do most of the things that we do. We do things because they'll either make us happy now or in the future. We think they will. But Jesus says that we would be happier if we desired righteousness first. Happiness seems to be like a side benefit of desiring the righteousness. And it's a worthwhile thought because we all try to be happy, but we're not all very successful. I heard a story this past week. The University of Chicago released a study on the happiness of Americans. Apparently they do this every year. Uh, And they've been doing it for decades. But they have reported now that the numbers for 2021 are the worst on record. Uh, Most years, on average, about 10% of Americans say they are unhappy. They would describe themselves that way. In 2021, that number was 25%. Only 19% now claim that they are happy. That's down from 31% only three years ago. The numbers are particularly bad among younger Americans. I'm sure the pandemic is not helping, but it's amazing how fragile happiness is when you think about it. And while our culture is hungry for happiness, we're starved for it. And Jesus says you'd be better off being hungry for righteousness because you'll eventually get it and you'll be happy and blessed in the process. Now, one of the things I noticed is that Jesus doesn't specify whose righteousness we're to hunger for. Maybe that sounds like a silly question, but bear with me, because if I'm going to intensely desire righteousness... I want to know whose righteousness. Because otherwise, how am I going to know what's going to satisfy me? I don't even know what I'm looking for. Are we talking about personal righteousness or something broader? If we're talking about my own personal righteousness, that could be a while in coming. Uh, In fact, I can safely say that if my deepest desire and hunger is for my own personal righteousness, I will starve. Uh, Even if I do become more righteous over the course of a lifetime... Uh, A mere taste of righteousness is probably only going to make me hungrier. And and I can't really hope to be capital R righteous because I can only become slightly more righteous and it's going to be a painfully slow process. It's going to be unsatisfying. It's going to be like going on a permanent diet, eating kale all the time without losing weight. (laughs) But maybe the righteousness he's talking about refers to something broader, righteousness in general. 
Or, put differently, the righteousness of everyone else. I can get on board with that. Uh, It's natural to desire righteousness in others. I am much better at desiring all of your sanctification than my own. (laughs) Personal righteousness is hard. I want y'all to become more righteous so that my life becomes easier. I might even have an easier time being righteous myself if everyone else would stop pissing me off all the time and sinning. You get holy and then I can try, right? And of course, this beatitude, I think, encompasses probably both forms of righteousness. Jesus wants us to have an intense desire for righteousness all around. And of course, that would include righteousness in ourselves and in the world around us in the same way that we were called to mourn the sin in ourselves and the sin outside of ourselves and others. If the root of all problems is sin... The antidote, you would think, is righteousness, an end of sin. Righteousness, by definition, is the absence of sin. If sin is the cause of all suffering, we should desire its eradication. Of course, we should hunger for more personal righteousness and a more righteous world to live in, but that's a far cry from our reality, isn't it? I don't know if any of you would argue that we live in a particularly righteous age. And the only righteous man who ever lived was the one who was saying these words, and he didn't live in a just age either, did he? He hungered for righteousness, and he was the only one who had it personally, but he still lived in an unrighteous generation surrounded by unrighteousness. So this all seems a bit out of reach, doesn't it? I can't be righteous. That's too hard. And I've already failed so badly I can't possibly make up for it. And even if I could, my righteousness wouldn't be enough to fix everyone else. Even if I could perfectly imitate Jesus, my hunger would still be unsatisfied in that respect because I would still be surrounded by unrighteousness. But the more I think about it, the more I think maybe that all misses the point. Because I think that the most striking thing about this beatitude is that it settles for desire. And what I mean is this. Jesus does not say, blessed are the righteous. He could have said it that way. It would have made logical sense to say it that way, but it's not what he says. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The command here is not so much specifically to be righteous, but to want it. The blessing is for those who truly want it. The initial goal is not the satisfaction, but the desire. What Jesus seems to be saying is that he would settle for you wanting righteousness. If you can't get it, you should at least want it. Now, on the face of it, the more I thought about that, I thought, well, that sounds like a relief, right? Because if I think of it that way, the bar seems to be set a little lower, doesn't it? (laughs) Wanting something is easier than getting it, right? I'm very good at wanting things, aren't you? Jesus seems to be saying that all I really need to do for now is want righteousness. He commands me to desire it with the same intensity he felt in the wilderness for food. But there's the rub. I don't really want righteousness that badly. In fact, I don't always want righteousness to begin with. And as I said before, it's fairly easy to desire righteousness in you all. But for myself, I kind of want to pass to be just a little unrighteous. I like being righteous when it feels good, when I can feel like a hero. And sometimes righteousness coincides with what I already kind of want. 
for selfish reasons. And that's great. It's always nice if you can have it all. I like when my sermons are very effective. And that's righteous and good for the kingdom, but there's also a lot of ego mixed in there. I enjoy spending time with my wife and kids. That's a righteous enough desire, but I'm also selfish and just like to be comfortable. To follow along with Jesus' illustration, we are fine with being hungry for righteousness when it tastes good. It's kind of like when my kids refuse to eat dinner. They've gotten better, only because Georgia really cracks a whip, but some of you know that Gwen, my, my youngest, once went on a hunger strike for three days because she refused to eat her soup for dinner one night. And she was hungry for sure, but not for soup. It's easy to be hungry for ice cream. It's much harder to work up a hankering for kale. And righteousness can taste like kale. And maybe it's good for you, but it's hard to get excited about sometimes. And maybe I want everyone else to eat healthy, but I prefer to indulge my sweet tooth. Or my salty tooth, as the case tends to be with me. So the more I thought about it that way, the more I was tempted to feel pretty downcast about this beatitude. Because I thought to myself, desiring righteousness is just as impossible as doing it. Here's Jesus trying to make this easier for me, and I'm still blowing it. I feel like St. Augustine, what did he say? Lord, make me sinless, but not yet. I don't even want the righteousness. I want the blessings of righteousness without the work. We want sin even more than satisfaction, even though it leaves us empty, and we know it. None of us truly desire righteousness in this way. Paul says in Romans 7 that his old sin nature causes him to do things he doesn't want to do. He says, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And the fact is that even the fact that he even desires to do the right thing means he's a step ahead of me a lot of the time. And it's sad because, you know, you can imagine what a difference it would make if we even wanted righteousness. Not that we could achieve it, but even if we wanted it. The lack of this hunger is why the world is such a mess. Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about that. He says, you know, imagine if the world, even if just Christians really wanted righteousness, he argues that the world would probably suddenly be at peace. We would try harder, and life would be better. Not perfect, but better. And part of the reason we don't have peace in the world, and sometimes even in the church, is because we don't, we not only don't behave righteously, we don't even really want to. Meaning, We don't usually sin by accident. We sin because our deepest desires, our hungers, are not for righteousness. We want the happiness and the blessing, but not the work. That's discouraging. I I know I feel this way, and I'm assuming you all can relate. But there's another angle of looking at this. Because Jesus didn't say, blessed are the righteous, right? But he also didn't say, blessed are those who try harder. Meaning, the command here is not a form of works righteousness either. The blessing is not for those who strive extra for righteousness. The blessing is for those who hunger for it, who desire it. Now, we can't do that either because we don't know how to change something that is so internal to us, that is such a part of us. Our problem is built in. We are born wanting the wrong things. Our appetites are all screwed up. So it sounds to me, ultimately, like what we need is a change of affection. We need a new desire placed in us. 
a foreign desire, a desire we were not born with, and a desire that will be in constant conflict with our flesh. We need a hunger that comes from outside of ourselves, and we need the Holy Spirit to do this. We don't even have the power to want something different. We don't naturally want righteousness at all, and even when we do hunger for it, we do it with mixed motives, so neither our personal righteousness nor our hunger for it are particularly impressive most of the time. In our sinful nature, we don't have it, we don't want it, but this is why I think Jesus is not primarily talking about personal righteousness or the righteousness of others. The righteousness he wants us to hunger and thirst after is not primarily our own, but his. We need the righteousness of Christ himself. Now, I don't think the crowds realized all of this at the time, but that's what Jesus is really talking about here. He wants us to desire the source of righteousness. I hope you're all good Americans and have seen Willy Wonka the original one, the good one, not the Johnny Depp one, right? There's a, a scene at the end when Willy Wonka tells Charlie, he says, you've won the jackpot, the grand and glorious jackpot. And Charlie says, the chocolate? And Willy Wonka says, the chocolate? Yes, the chocolate, but that's just the beginning. Spoiler alert, he ends up giving Charlie the entire factory. And so the prize is not the chocolate, but the source of the chocolate, the source of all the confectionery wonders. He gets the whole wonderful, mysterious thing. He gets the source. And similarly, Jesus is the source, and he wants you to desire him. We're not supposed to desire righteousness in the abstract. It's not a what, it's a he. We were made to desire the embodiment of righteousness himself. If I can borrow from that awful cheap trick song, I want you to want me, Jesus wants you to want him. Forget Mr. Right. He wants you to hunger and thirst for Mr. Righteousness. And the only place you'll get righteousness is from him. He's the salesman and the supplier. He's the chocolate and the factory. He can give you the desire, but more importantly, he can satisfy it. Now, as with all of these Beatitudes... So far, the complete fulfillment is not for the here and now. You're not going to experience true righteousness until you go to be with Jesus. The best we can do for now is to hunger and thirst, and we're not even going to do that right. We need him to teach us. But the goal, I think, is to never be satisfied with this world. We should be asking Jesus to give us new desires, to help us to want him and his righteousness more and more, to fix our eyes on eternity where complete righteousness will finally be established. As an illustration, Georgia and I like to go out to eat. Doesn't everybody, it's the best, there's no dishes, it's great. There was a difference between us for many years about how we would prepare to go for a night out. Uh, Georgia would prepare by eating in the afternoon so that we would save money and not overdo it when we got there. (laughs) To this day, she still tends to order water. She doesn't like soda, but she's also cheap. I'm not complaining. She's an easy date in that way. Me? I starve myself. I starve myself so that eating out will be worth it. I skip all the meals that day to increase the excitement of the event. And for once, I think my example is a better illustration than hers. 
As the Holy Spirit changes our appetites, we will want the kale of righteousness more and more, and it will even taste less and less like kale. And as he adjusts our tastes, we will feel less and less satisfied with this world because we will want more and more to be with Jesus. We will be in a perpetual state of hunger without full satisfaction in this world. Now, God is generous, and he likes to give us just a little taste, right? And communion is a good illustration of this. David Green, for years, has apparently been advocating for bigger portions at communion. If he had his way, everybody would get two thick slices of bread, Texas toast style, and everyone would get their own personal chalice of wine. And while I commend the enthusiasm of Reverend Green, this would create some headaches. I mean, I know our wine is cheap, but it would still get expensive. We would need bigger cup holders in the pews, And you can imagine the spills on these poor pews as well. (laughs) Carpeted church pews are not meant to withstand this kind of treatment. But perhaps there's a better reason to be satisfied with sharing half a Panera loaf with 50 of your best friends. Yes, the servings are small. No one is satisfied with a little tiny tear of bread, and nobody is satisfied with a little thimbleful of wine. But that kind of underscores the point. It's a taste of the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's just enough to leave you wanting more. And this blessing that Jesus gives is for those who want more. The beatitude is addressed to the heart. This beatitude is asking the question, what do you actually really want? What do you truly desire? Who do you truly desire? And if the answer is anything other than Jesus, then you will always be dissatisfied both now and in eternity. The only way to be happy and satisfied is if you hunger and thirst for Jesus. And when Jesus says that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied, he is implicitly saying that the promise of heaven is him. We saw in Bible study this week that after the wilderness, Jesus was criticized because he refused to fast anymore. And he goes from house to house feasting, and it's always a party everywhere he goes. And why is that? It's because he's the bridegroom. Heaven itself is portrayed as a wedding party. It's a feast. You can't fast when you're with Jesus. That would be rude. To be with Jesus means eating and drinking. That's how he rolls. And that's what we're going to do in just a little bit when we come to communion. And if you don't know Jesus... And if you're not hungry for him yet, that's okay. But I would say, I would urge you to ask Jesus to give you a new appetite. Ask him to send his Holy Spirit to change you so that you'll begin to desire righteousness. And you won't desire it perfectly, but the the desire will grow. And one day, when you get to glory, you will be satisfied. I'll quote Willy Wonka just one last time because I love how the movie closes. Willy Wonka says to Charlie, he says, don't forget, Charlie, what happened to the man who suddenly got everything he always wanted. And Charlie says, what's that? And he says, he lived happily ever after. That's a picture of heaven. That's what it's like to join Jesus for the feast. So who's hungry? you're even a little bit hungry and thirsty for righteousness, then come and taste the bread of life. Come and drink the living water. Eat and drink and be satisfied. Taste and see that the Lord is good.
The world has nothing that compares with that. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we realize we come before you as people who are driven by our appetites, Lord, and they are all disordered. We seldom want the things that you want. We don't want the things of the kingdom. We don't desire righteousness. Lord, we are carried by our appetites and they're so screwed up. Lord, we do pray that you would be at work in your people, Lord. Refresh our hunger for you. And Lord, as we come to the table, we pray that you would renew that hunger in us, Lord, that this little taste would just be a little bit of a promise, Lord. Not that it's full satisfaction, Lord, but help us to see you in it. Be with us, Lord. Give us a new appetite. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology.